I'm Emily Jashinsky. I'm Josh Hammer. I'm Inez Stepman. And I'm Ben Weingarten. And this is NatCon Squad, where common sense and common good meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Make sure to subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're going to start today by talking about the Biden administration fighting so desperately to be able to gatekeep speech, to police our speech. Ben is going to explain what's happening, new developments in that sphere, although it feels like there's a new one every week. They just continue to crack down on American speech in fun ways. Josh is then going to take over and talk to us about the debate over Ukraine and NATO. There's a NATO summit happening this week, as you certainly noticed on the news cycle. And Zelensky has plenty to say, as does the American side and people like Anthony Blinken. Uh, then Inez is going to talk to us about a Casey DeSantis ad in the Paris vote in 2024. I'll finish by talking about the controversy that unfolded this week after Maureen Dowd, of all people, wrote a column criticizing Joe Biden for not acknowledging his seventh grandchild. The view went crazy, and I think it's it's worth sort of diving into all of that. So let's start with the free speech policing and you, Ben. Thanks. And um, I guess there's more good tidings to be had with respect to this bombshell landmark, true bombshell, not even scare quotes here, bombshell and really, frankly, historic case, Missouri v. Biden, which has blown the lid off the story of federal government-led speech policing in cahoots with putatively private sector cutouts, so-called academic and research anti-disinfo organizations, working with the social media companies to get them to suppress all manner of wrong think. And as we discussed last week in an amazing July 4th injunction, the judge presiding over that case, Judge Terry Doty, issued a temporary injunction freezing the federal government-led aspect of this mass public-private censorship regime that's hoovered up literally billions of pieces of content and probably gotten hundreds of millions of pieces of content at least censored or never even drafted, thanks to the policies put in place. As we discussed, and, and I think as might have been indicated already at the time, uh, it was very clear that the feds would be appealing this injunction. And in fact, they also sought a stay of the injunction. That is to freeze the freeze on federal government-led speech policing. Uh, ultimately, both the plaintiffs attacked that motion and then very qu quickly thereafter, Judge Doty himself shot down the stay. Nevertheless, the appeal has occurred. There is a document out there, an appeal to the uh, Fifth Circuit. We'll see where that goes. But I want to focus on the government's arguments calling for a stay, for a freeze of this freeze of their speech policing, because I think it's so revealing about the worldview governing the entirety of the US government right now when it comes to our speech. And I'll just read very briefly from the intro to the short motion for a stay. And here's what the government's argument was for maintaining their speech policing regime. The government faces irreparable harm with each day the injunction remains in effect, as the injunction's broad scope and ambiguous terms, debatable by the way, including a lack of clarity with respect to what the injunction does not prohibit, also not even debatable because it lays out, incidentally, many areas where government agencies can continue to talk to social media companies dealing with national security or criminal acts, for example. Anyway, the injunction may be read to prevent the government from engaging in a vast range of lawful and responsible conduct, 
including speaking on matters of public concern and working with social media companies on initiatives to prevent grave harm to the American people and our democratic processes. And that sort of argument carried over into the federal government's appeal. But I think it's remarkable to state very clearly what the feds are saying here. What they are saying is twofold. First of all, your right to speak freely causes irreparable harm to the federal government. Or when you look at the conduct they actually engaged in with the censoring of the Hunter Biden laptop story, for example, election interference, preventing government-led election interference causes irreparable harm to the federal government. This is the perspective that they're taking. And they put this, of course, you know, under the, the uh, sort of argument of your speech equals harm and the government needs to remove that harm by silencing you. Uh, but beyond that, then they also have this asinine argument about somehow you're taking away the government's First Amendment right to speak by preventing the government from censoring you, by, by preventing government agencies from going to social media companies and flagging for them all manner of tweets and Facebook posts or entire narratives or telling those companies, gee, you better change your terms of service to block and mass offending content according to the views and the whims of the government agencies or the Biden administration. And what they're saying is, you're taking away our right to speak, our right being the government's right to speak. And what's you know, obviously asinine about this, beyond, of course, the fact that the injunction was very detailed in going through the various categories of conduct the government can engage in in its communications with social media companies, is that it's not as if there's anything in the injunction saying, well, government officials can't issue press releases or call for press conferences or use their social media accounts et cetera, et cetera. This is purely about preventing government-led speech policing, but the government can't tolerate that. And so that's why I think that this stay, this failed stay that the government put forth is so significant because it so perfectly captures the anti-freedom worldview, essentially, uh, of our government, but also the government's desire, its utter contempt for the First Amendment and its desire and almost necessity to silence those who dissent. And you know that's obviously reflected in the findings, the evidence produced that's been remarkable in this case. But the fact that the government so straightforward and brazenly says, you're gonna cause us harm by preventing us from violating your right to free speech, I think it's remarkable and it's worth emphasizing that this is the perspective of our betters. So this is a pivotal case. We'll see where the appeal goes. Ultimately, this, this case may end up in some form or fashion being litigated and brought before the Supreme Court. Uh, we ought to watch it. And last but not least, I'll just note briefly, and I did a super thread on this last night, the House Weaponization Committee is out with a report basically showing that the FBI passed along censorship requests from a Ukrainian intelligence agency that was wholly compromised and overrun uh, by pro-Russian forces and actually got social media companies to try and censor people, including Americans, and including even a State Department Russia, Russian language account through these requests to social media companies. So this effort has continued the censorship regime, and that's precisely why there has to be an injunction on it. And with that, uh, put it out to the group for your takeaways on where this case is and where it's going.
and um, I'll just quickly oh. add to uh, I, just uh, I'm going to be really quick and say I think it's important not to lose sight of not that anybody here is doing it but as Ben was talking one thing that just strikes me is how time and again what they're censoring is turning out to be true information um, and so when you're looking at what they wanted to censor in this case COVID information um, Hunter Biden laptop stories um, you know information about Ukraine there are all you know legitimate arguments for genuinely harmful information that could be circulating around the public that you can perceivably make, et cetera, et cetera, that, you know, maybe, uh, I, I don't really think the government should have a role in it, but you can maybe make the argument that it's toxic and and has a public health risk attached to it or something like that. You can maybe make that argument sometimes. Uh, in, in these cases, and it seems like in so many of these high-profile stories, they're actually turning out to be censoring true information. Lab leak is another really good example if you look at what Fauci and Collins were emailing back and forth to each other. So it, time and again, what we're finding is like this argument is a smokescreen when it comes to like actual public health risks um, or international security risks, whatever. And what they end up doing is cheapening real concerns about those to the extent that they should exist um, down the road. It's the same thing with Russian collusion. Like, yeah, Russia did try to interfere in the election with some stupid memes, uh, not by compromising the Republican candidate. Uh, so I'll turn it over on that. Yeah, I mean, this is this is obviously what, what this case is making clear is that uh, this kind of communication is basically an end run around the First Amendment and democracy, uh, both, right? Um, Emily just pointed to the fact that a lot of the stuff that's censored, it turns out to be true and everyone admits that it's true several months later. Uh, but at the same time, like at the moment, you even have some of these social media platforms pulling down video of elected officials um, questioning under oath uh, people uh, who are appearing before them in Congress and hearings, right? Uh, that That is makes it impossible for a democracy to function if we can't even observe what our elected officials are even doing unless we happen to be sitting uh, in Congress at that given moment, right? Um, look, I, I guess uh, this highlights two more points that I, I wanted to make. One is is the the nature of, of our ruling class is non um, segregated by public and private means, right? These are people who largely agree with each other. Unfortunately, a lot of the um, takeaways that I, I believe will be uh, sort of uh, drawn out from some of these positive cases is basically just never write anything down. Right. Um, a lot of these people, they they work in the same environments. They move in and out of government, academia and the private sector, all in this kind of little triangle that goes back and forth. We hear a lot about the revolving door when it comes to lobbyists and elected officials. There is a revolving door uh, to, to what Ike called right the um, the, the sort of uh, scientific industrial complex. Right. Um, and, and so what's going on here are a lot of the same people who went to the same schools. They, they either they did some, you know, they, they've done other kinds of programs together. Uh, they, a lot of them know each other as colleagues uh, over time in the same fields. This is not like a separable beast, um, largely speaking. And and maybe that goes to the fact that our, our elite is way too homogenized in a way that even if you go back 50 or 100 years, it really wasn't. Um, not in all the ways the left wants to, to believe, of course, about race and everything else. But for example, regionally, uh, where you had like uh, industrialists from, you know, one part of the country and, and land barons from another. And, and um, you, you kind of had different types of elites uh, in, in different spheres. And now all of our elites are extremely homogenized, coming up through the same system, all designed to produce the the ultimate in in uh, in, in what America of 2022, uh, 2023 uh, considers elite, which is Pete Buttigieg, more or less. Right. Um, and then Finally, just a really, really brief point. Uh, 
there's a question of what what's going to happen when we do have these positive rulings, right? There's going to be a campaign of delegit- to delegitimize the court. We saw what happened when the deep state re- writ large decided the people are not allowed to elect Donald Trump. Um, I, I don't see what's going to prevent uh, the same thing from happening. Just basically saying, you know, no, the courts are not allowed uh, to, to stop what we want to do either. So um, I think that that really is the, the the big question going forward. These are really positive rulings. I'm really happy to see them happen. They need to happen, uh, but we need to be on guard for what I think is an inevitable pushback uh, from from basically the forces of permanent government in this country. Um, so we're basically out of time. So I'll just briefly add one kind of appendix note to this from a slightly more legal perspective. First of all, just at a non-legal perspective, I'm very happy that we're talking about this because it is extremely important to see in, in broad daylight, the Biden administration's genuinely terrifying. And, you know, this word gets overused, but Judge Jody used it in his PI ruling, a genuinely Orwellian stance that the government is taking here. So basically, uh, the the legal threshold for a stay of a PI is you basically have to show kind of irreparable harm. So the fact that they're kind of using that language is not necessarily shocking because that is kind of the explicit legal standard, but it, it's still terrifying. I mean, it's not necessarily shocking from a black letter law perspective, but it's it literally like like raises the like the hairs, the cackles. I think like like on the back of our necks when we see this kind of rhetoric from the Biden administration. The only final thing that I want to add here, real brief, um, Philip Hamburger who has been extremely involved in this litigation as he has been involved in many other kind of big tech censorship type litigations. He's represented various individual plaintiffs in kind of a a sister lawsuit of sorts, because this is primarily kind of a Missouri and Louisiana attorneys general lawsuit, but it's kind of a sister thing that, that if hamburgers firm, the new civil liberties Alliance has been involved with. So he had a, he said, he said multiple wall street journal pieces on this over the past month or so. And I just want to flag that he had a legal argument in the journal about a month ago that I kind of only recently read or reread. I can't quite remember. And I found that just extremely compelling, which is this notion that, you know, the basic defense here from the Biden administration and frankly, from from Facebook, Google and the big tech oligarchs is what Inez was alluding to, that there is kind of this still this still remains this this pivotal, indispensable distinction between the public sector and the private sector and that the big tech actors are not truly state actors. They are not public. The point that Philip Hamburger makes is that that's actually the wrong way to think about the First Amendment free speech text, which very clearly speaks of abridging free speech. It makes no notion of the government has to kind of wholly control a purportedly private apparatus. Rather, if the government uses is, uses its myriad tentacles to suppress or abridge free speech, that is the violation. So anyway, sorry, we're way out of time in the segment, so we're going to transition here. But I just think that that's an extremely important First Amendment point to make, and I hope that we get some clarity on that point, whether it's at the Fifth Circuit or at the U.S. Supreme Court. Okay, so um, I'll transition now to myself. This is a fairly hard transition. not going to try to sugarcoat this one. Um, But uh, in totally unrelated news, uh, Joe Biden has been over in Lithuania this week for the NATO summit. And kind of the the topic of the day or the topic of the summit has been, you know, what else, of course, especially in that part of the world. It's the, it's the lingering war, the, the, this horrible war in, in Ukraine, um, between Russia and Ukraine that's it's gone on for almost a year and a half now. And specifically the question that is being frequently asked and debated, and there was kind of a, a buildup trying to figure out what exactly would be the Biden administration's stance when it comes to this particular question, is what would the U.S. stance be? Uh, when it comes to Ukraine's uh, prospective membership in NATO. And th- this is a 
this is kind of an emotional issue for all parties involved, obviously. I mean, I don't pretend that this is kind of like like a staid sober issue. This is not kind of like a fine kind of debating marginal tax rates or capital gains tax rates kind of issue. From you know, the Ukrainians obviously believe that if they were in NATO, then this invasion never would have happened. Zelensky uh, correctly, from a Ukrainian nationalist perspective, obviously wants to be a part of NATO, is desperately wants NATO to be more formally and explicitly involved in this conflict. From his perspective, that's the easiest way to end it. And many of the other NATO members in in, in Eastern Europe, you know, countries like Lithuania itself, Poland, and some others, I, I think would be extremely sympathetic and warm to Ukrainian membership in NATO. However, um, because the four of us are Americans here, and this is NACON squad, and we're supposed to be kind of skeptical of kind of the expansion of transnational institutions and sweeping kind of 30 to 40 country international alliances here, I think it's worth kind of briefly returning to something remotely resembling first principles when it comes to this question here. And it's important to bear in mind that NATO, which is already at roughly 31 or 32 countries, depending on you know how soon Sweden will join. Turkey has just kind of greenlit Sweden's ascension. They were having kind of a, a, a an inside baseball dispute over Sweden's treatment of the Kurds, which Turkey hates. It's not really worth getting into that right now. Um, Finland has just has just ascended last year. So the question then is what the U.S. stand should be with Ukraine. And I, I, I'm actually pleasantly surprised, frankly, at what the Biden administration has actually said publicly thus far on this question, which is that they do not support it at this current time. Now, they've, they're basically kicking the can down the road. They are leaving it open for U.S. support for Ukrainian membership at, at a hypothetical future date, but they're pretty firmly ruling it out at this time. Now, it's worth noting there are some folks in, in both political parties who oppose Joe Biden on this. So, you know, um, the most stereotypical of, of all the neoconservatives, folks like Lindsey Graham are out there kind of gun charging. You know, that's the same Lindsey Graham who was recently over in Kiev referring to the hundreds of billions of dollars of U.S. taxpayer money being spent in this conflict as kind of the, the, the best use of U.S. taxpayer money ever, ever spent there. You know, folks like that are kind of clamoring or chomping at the bit for the U.S. to green light Ukrainian membership into NATO right now. I mean, it is worth, I think, at least briefly noting that the West kind of constant dangling of possible Ukrainian membership for, for NATO in the first place is one reason why we are in this mess in the first place. I'm not saying it's the primary reason, but I absolutely do think that it is one reason um, going back, you know, at least kind of 5, 10, 15, perhaps years then. But the broader point here, the broader point is that the United States continues to foot the bill, primarily speaking, for NATO alliances and alliances like that. Under Article 5 of NATO, you know, an attack on one is an attack on all. And the notion here that we should be expanding, expanding the U.S.'s responsibility to protect all of these effective satellite states, whether it's in NATO or frankly, whether it's in many other parts of the world, I think is just to kind of use kind of the overall phrase, just a total fundamental failure to understand what time it is. And it's a double failure to understand what time it is when you consider the fact that China is frankly the United States' first, second, third, fourth, and fifth biggest rival on the geopolitical stage right now. So to kind of just further our, our involvement and in, to kind of set us up for kind of future Article 5 treaty required obligations elsewhere strikes me as utter complete fallacy. But again, I'm cautiously optimistic that the Biden administration has not done the full Lindsey, Lindsey Graham on this one either. So um, I'm happy to kind of toss it open on that note. Yeah, just just a couple notes. One, Zelensky seems to be following the Biden administration line, which is uh, as, as sort of the junior partner in this, that we're going to talk about this after the war. Um, 
that that because uh, there there were some pushes to, to have them join while they're still engaged in the war, um, and so that seems to be off the table. Biden took it off the table, and Zelensky now is following him in in doing that. Um, you know, I, I I've said here in the past, I think this entire narrative about NATO is is somewhat of a misunderstanding of of how Russians see the West and how Westerns Westerners see Russia and how we understand each other. Um, but but there's some some very important points I think for both the war and for uh, us and our national interests involved here. One, this is this is turning into something that looks a lot like World War One. fortunately, without so far um, all, all the entrance from around the world, but where you have these, these sort of meat grinder, um, mile by mile at war uh, of, of pushing the lines by very small amounts without having air support or air control, right? It's like very, very, because Russians have air dominance, it's extremely hard to, to, um, you know, do this this advancement in the way that I think uh, Ukrainians had hoped they would be able to do, and instead, what it's turning into is both enormous meat grinder for human life um, on both sides, but but also an enormous waste of ammunition. Um, and and so that's what we're seeing. And, and the the final point I would make, just in our interests, it should be regardless of how anyone feels about our involvement in Ukraine, uh, whatever this this should terrify every American. Uh, Biden in talking about granting Ukraine uh, cluster munitions, right, uh, said basically we are out of other ammo and we can't produce more. That's a problem. Now, the, the administration has walked it back. And I know Biden sometimes goes off script and says things and maybe he doesn't know what he's talking about. I wouldn't be the first time. Right. But but uh, if it is true that the United States cannot uh, even keep up with the munitions requirements for this war between Ukraine and Russia, we are in massive trouble. Um, and this has to goes back to, you know, uh, an article that I, I highlighted, I think, on this podcast uh, a long time ago, months ago, from uh, Addison Del Maestro, actually in The Bulwark, the only good article I've ever read in The Bulwark thus far. Um, but uh, basically saying why the U.S. can no longer manufacture tiny little star-shaped pa pasta and going back through like how there's an entire chain of manufacturing and expertise that is required, um, even for something relatively simple. Well, think about the military version of that. Uh, we need to think very seriously about whether the U.S. industrial base needs to be revived, not just for economic reasons or for all the reasons that, you know, Donald Trump likes to talk about in terms of the forgotten American man and worker and decline in the Rust Belt, but whether our very national security uh, desperately depends on the ability to actually manufacture the kind of ammunition that would actually carry us, not just in, in um, a war that for us is relatively minor, not for the Ukrainians, but for us should be relatively minor, this war between Ukraine and Russia, um, but also against a potential war uh, with China, with our primary geopolitical foe. This is like very scary stuff. Yeah, just to echo that point really briefly, um, under the Trump administration, there was a report put out on the defense industrial base showing, I think, multiple hundred gaps in our supply chains, vulnerabilities where we're reliant on other countries, including, by the way, communist China, to be able to produce significant military hardware. Uh, and meanwhile, we are running down our stockpiles in connection with Ukraine. So once again, you see this ultimately being an inadvertent benefit for Communist China. I do wonder what these negotiations uh, going or what these meetings regarding NATO today augur with respect to whatever kind of ultimate settlement will be reached between Russia and Ukraine. I'm not sure what the tea leaves show based upon the rhetoric that we've seen out of the parties uh, in recent days, but I guess that's something that's TBD. And I think 
you know, to Josh's broader point, there are some basic questions about what should be the purpose of NATO, who is the greatest adversary that the West faces, and how should Western powers be oriented and prioritizing with respect to those threats. And obviously, communist China is the number one threat. I think for a while, we would have said that, um, you know, I guess we would have downgraded Russia relative to where it is now, given Russia's aggression in, of course, recent years. Uh, but nevertheless, they are not even close to peer competitors. Russia has a trump card of the massive nuclear weapons stockpile. But outside of that, it's not nearly comparable to communist China. And so there's there becomes a question at the end of the day also, you know, the notion of a, an attack on one is an attack on all. Would that actually hold up under duress, I think, is an open question. And then more importantly, you know, what should the Western alliances and partnerships actually look like? given the prioritization of threats that we face throughout the world. And, you know, those will be interesting questions for uh, Republicans to address going into 2024, I think, as well. And, and I'm sure we'll be covering that in the months ahead. A lot of interesting questions um, raised by all of that. I would just add this entire NATO summit. And I think uh, the the attitude that Vladimir Zelensky has uh, used towards the United States, um, it, it is just like deeply irritating. And we've set ourselves up for this now. Understandable, but deeply irritating at the same time, um, given uh, how poorly we've been able to track uh, the use of our equipment and our spending over there and how serious the threat of China is, uh, not just to the United States, also to our other allies. Um, when when they suddenly have, you know, chips problems um, because there's an invasion of Taiwan, uh, they're going to want a whole lot from us then too. So there, there's just, I mean, this entire situation um, has been obviously frustrating to everyone for for over a year now. Um, but the level of death and destruction, and the sort of disappointment of this spring turned summer offensive, um, you know, I, I think is changing some minds uh, in a in a positive direction. So on that note, I'll I'll send it back to you, Inez. Sure. Uh, and again, uh, like Josh, I'm not going to attempt to, uh, sort of, we're just going to hard reset here into the domestic 2024 space. Um, the DeSantis campaign put out an ad with his wife, Casey DeSantis, um, very clearly targeted directly at parents, uh, particularly moms, but uh, at parents and, and with all the concerns, uh, cultural concerns surrounding education um, and, and the the kind of ideological and physical uh threats that are coming at children from all directions uh, in, in the current system, not only from the education system, but from the their pediatricians, um, from, from you know, book fairs, from libraries, right? It's just every institution um, has bought into a, whether it's it's a general sort of woke perspective or, or whether it's specifically gender ideology pronouns, you know, introducing children at very young ages to these kinds of things. Um, in any case, I, I think unlike some of the previous ads, I got a lot of criticism for being too online from the DeSantis campaign. I think this is very much not, and I'm disappointed to see people honestly uh, lumping this in with the rest of it. Um, this is not really a concern of mine vis-a-vis -vis the 2024 campaign uh, itself, but how this this fight between DeSantis and Trump is going to shape what becomes the agenda of the Republican Party. The Republican Party still has this enormous opportunity to really seize on parent energy. It is not fading. Look, overall, there is a kind of life cycle um, coming from my, my Tea Party days of, of popular movements, particularly popular movements that don't have a strong like central leadership, right? This is genuinely organic in that way. It is bottom up. 
Um, and for that reason, it's going to be like very disjointed. There's going to be like, there's not going to be one strong sort of agenda and marching orders. Um, but I think right now, it's at the peak of its power, actually. And you, you can see that that parent vote is still really commanding an enormous importance, not just in the primary race, but I think it will in the general as well. And you can see that by both the draw of the Moms for Liberty conference um, over, over the 4th of July weekend, the fact that they could get, this is one of the few places that managed to get Trump and DeSantis in the same venue, right? They've been kind of avoiding each other, um, but but they both had to show up and make their case uh, to Moms for Liberty. I think that's a really, really positive sign um, in, in terms of parent power, in terms of the importance of, of the parent vote and and a lot of these cultural issues surrounding children and education um, in in this, this race going forward. Um, just I think that is a testament to the fact that this movement is extremely powerful and that politicians are going to have to take note of it, whether you're DeSantis or Trump or frankly, um, whether you're Joe Biden. So with that, I'll, I'll kick it out to you guys. Well, and I think that's an important distinction in that there's a way to talk about issues for parents um, that is sort of makes sense on a, a grassroots in the uh, the like parade type of conversation, right? Like it's it's very different if you're talking about um, if you're trying to rally you know people online to change a narrative so that reporters see a different kind of framing, right? With like don't say gay. That's how a lot of like very online, as we say pejoratively, but it, it is sometimes you know genuinely helpful for a campaign to have uh, this like it, it didn't really work for Kamala Harris. Um, and, you know, we didn't see like the sort of Twitter thing work for people like Mike and Michael Schellenberger, who's great uh, either. But uh, sometimes it really does penetrate the news cycle. And so, you know, when you have some you know, online warriors uh, chipping away, doing that day in and day out, that can be really helpful. It is very different than taking your message to parents. Um, and it's, it's very different than talking to people like on the streets of uh, Florida or Iowa or New Hampshire. And I think just recognizing that is half the battle and then not allowing the sort of, you know, when they had uh, Patrick Bateman in that one ad that they reposted, but they didn't create and they're like splicing Ron DeSantis together with Patrick Bateman, which is only something you get if you're like really irony poisoned. You're like, oh, so, so this is like American psycho mass serial killer guy. That's cool. Um, you know, if, if unless you're like thoroughly irony poisoned, you, you might be very confused by that. But just making sure, um, A, that you understand you have to talk to people differently and then uh, being sure that that messaging hits the right people and is not drowned out by, uh, you know, mockery or whatever. This is one huge advantage that Donald Trump has because he is so like, it, he, he sets his own narrative. He cuts through everything else because he's a freaking reality TV show host and can, um, and that's much, much different for any other candidate. And so it's, it's an uphill battle for DeSantis in a way it isn't for Trump. Um, for Trump, he just needs to learn to talk about it and to talk about it in a way that's like accurate and um, catches parents' attention and makes them feel like things will seriously be done. That's the DeSantis advantage. He's actually seriously taken steps uh, despite media nonsense and despite leftist nonsense. He's taken like real policy steps to addressing this in Florida and was like done stuff. So they both have different advantages here, but I think the messaging question is really, really important. So Look, um, I, I don't have like a compelling hot take or anything like that. I will merely say that from my vantage point as kind of the token Floridian of this group and the token Floridian who, you know, moved here due in no small part due to Governor DeSantis's policies and his leadership during COVID-19 above all else and 
really just various other ways that he has transformed the nation's third largest state into kind of in many ways kind of the model of what of what red state governance and red state policies should look like um the whole kind of parental rights revolution uh has been arguably after COVID-19 it has arguably been kind of the bread and butter frankly uh, of all that DeSantis has tried to do here in Florida I mean that is an issue that he has run on repeatedly. I mean, if I'm not mistaken, this whole kind of Casey DeSantis led Mamas for DeSantis thing, I think I think they use the exact same term, Mamas for DeSantis for his gubernatorial reelect last year, if I'm not mistaken, actually. And, you know, Moms for Liberty, which has o- only fairly recently gained national attention, that is a Florida-based group. I think they started in Sarasota, if I'm not, if, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I can't remember exactly, or maybe, maybe on the East Coast of Florida. I can't remember exactly where, but it's definitely, definitely kind of started down here, down here in Florida. And I look, I mean, from a broader perspective, you know, this should go without saying, but just cut to kind of drive the point home. You know, if Republicans actually are going to be kind of like the working and middle class party, if they actually are going to a, a adopt a, a political economy that works for the working family and whatnot, a, a, a broader policy agenda oriented around making families viable, ideally on a single income, of course, easier said than done. And frankly, just empowering parents and families at all costs at the expense of outside hostile forces that would degrade the the institutional integrity and indeed kind of the individual vitality of the members of that family. I mean, that's like as low hanging fruit as it gets from or, or at least as low hanging fruit as it should get from a Republican perspective here. Um, now, obviously, just a very quick note, you know, the, the polls thus far clearly show President Trump dominating this race on a national level. Um, so, you know, whatever tweaks uh, the DeSantis campaign probably has in store over the, the coming months, um, you know, whether it's kind of rhetoric, messaging, venues, things of that nature, that's all, you know, fine. And we can kind of cross that bridge when we get to it. But the focus on parental rights is a very, very good one. And I certainly do not expect that to deviate from being kind of uh, right in the in the crosshairs of what this campaign seeks to do. Well, and it's it's worth noting empowering families and parents strikes at the very heart of the left's agenda since time immemorial, which is to break up the family, demoralize the nation, infiltrate and uh, pervert, you know, faith, traditional faith, the church, typically. So obviously. You know, it's it's interesting to me. I think there's an open question of is the left's pursuit of kids now that's so brazen and in your face illustrative of the fact that the long march is about reaching its apex or is it a desperation drive? Is it Overton window shifting? Um, but clearly, I think all of the radicalism and targeting of kids ultimately is about beyond trying to get people to deny their very nature creating a wedge between parents and their children, which is essential in any kind of revolution and takeover. And so the empowerment of parents and families and the fact that parents are awake now in a way they haven't been before potentially poses a a massive threat, obviously, to the left. And it'll be interesting to see if over the next year and a half, the radicalism continues or the left backs off, knowing that it might imperil critical cohorts for them in, quote unquote, Purple districts. And then I also wonder for parents in those purple districts who actually are aware of what's going on in their kids' schools, what do they weigh more? The efforts to indoctrinate their children, drive a wedge between children and their parents, um, demoralize them, inculcate them in a system that's totally antithetical to our system, 
et cetera, confuse them about their very na basic inborn nature. Does that outweigh the fear mongering of, you know, obviously uh, the ultra right Christian zealot Nash white nationalists who um, want people who uh, get raped not to be able to have abortions. And that's obviously going to be the fear mongering of the left on top of, you know, the domestic violent extremists on the right, et cetera. And I'll be curious, I'll be curious to see and interested to see which side wins out. Um, those who actually want to defend families and children or those who engage in the hysterical fear mongering that we've been witnessing now for frankly almost a decade. All right. I'm actually going to be a little bit braver and bolder than the rest of you and and build a bridge from this block to the next, uh, because one final thought that I had as you all were dis discussing this is uh, Ben just mentioned, you know, parents who actually know what's going on in their kids' classrooms. And it reminds me of the hedge fund manager that said, you know, I was going to support Ron DeSantis until I heard all about this like book ban stuff. Uh, and so obviously a lot of this is just simply that people are not going to have the best information. They're not going to have accurate information. And one story um, that I think is egregiously underappreciated and undercovered uh, by the media, but also just in the sort of broader public conversation because the media has turned a blind, a blind eye to it and the Democratic Party has allowed Joe Biden um, to ignore it is the fact that he has seven grandchildren. Uh, he makes his status as a grandfather central to his pitch to the American people. Um, and he acknowledges only six of those grandchildren. Now, this is in the news again because elite scribe Maureen Dowd, of all people, picked up on it and wrote a very buzzy column published on Sunday uh, about how it's, you know, scarring was the word she uses uh, to uh, Joe Biden's seventh grandchild that uh, the president refuses to acknowledge her as his grandchild. Um, White House aides are reportedly instructed to refer to Joe Biden's six grandchildren, not seven. Uh, the seventh grandchild is unacknowledged. She goes unacknowledged. London Joan Roberts is her name. She She's about four years old now. Um, she goes un unacknowledged because she is um was born of Hunter Biden's uh, relationship with a stripper. And that is a just disgusting reason for a purported man of Christian faith um, to leave a, a grandchild behind and, and leave them out. I remember over Christmas, he had stockings hung in the White House for every grandchild, um, but not for every grandchild because uh, there was not one for uh, Navy. I think her name is Navy Joan Roberts and the mother's name is, is London Roberts. Uh, the the former stripper that Hunter had a relationship with. Um, and, you know, they've been fighting over child support. They've been fighting over whether the kid is allowed to use the name. Um, and The View discussed the controversy in just a grotesque manner um, this week, blaming Republicans for making it an issue, saying it's disgusting for Republicans who obviously include Maureen Dowd, famous Republican Maureen Dowd, uh, making an issue of the, making an issue of the child, blah, blah, blah. Well, Biden makes an issue, of course, of him Himself as a grandfather and as a good Catholic man, um, he's made character front and center uh, in his campaign. You can certainly contrast that uh, with with other candidates and uh, you know people who who don't make character central to their pitch to the American people. Um, but Joe Biden definitely has. Uh, he said he'll restore normalcy and decency and civility. Um, and you know, I, I think this is actually like, is it the most serious thing happening in the country right now? No, I do though think the fact that he gets away with this um, and that you have these like 
rabid defenses of him in the view. You know, blind partisan loyalty is nothing new to the United States. Um, but again, the fact that you have the, the chorus of women on the view, the fact that the media has turned a blind eye to this over and over again, I think says something really sad about how far um, standards have fallen in our country. And I don't mean for presidents. Uh, I mean, just for like general, you know, it, it's absolutely true that if this was happening with Trump, we know the left would be freaking about it, freaking out about it every single day. They would be on, you know, baby watch outside the home, blah, 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 day in and day out. But um the, the point is, it's just something like in our culture, I think, that is is so hostile to family and um, it, or so uncaring and nonchalant about family um, that, you know, Biden will sell himself as a family man. But does it does it matter um, if, you know, he's he's doing something personally so disgusting? Uh, the, the sort of myriad corruption that we can point to in the Biden family is one thing, but on a personal level for a man who pitches so much of his personal character. I, I think this is just absolutely disgusting. I think it's gross that so many people on the left defend it. I you think you're going to hear more after Maureen Dowd kind of broke the, the ice there, um, but very, very slowly. So let me toss this open to the group. Yeah, I, I just would say, yeah, obviously this is this is really cruel to, to the child. Um, of course, being out in public in this story, being in public is itself a kind of cruelty it's it's always a, a balance of to what to talk how much to talk about something like this um when the kid will grow up and get old enough to to hear what people um were saying but it's worth noting not only did biden put this kind of normalcy and decency at the central central part of his pitch the american people he's actually defending against his corruption charges with much the same thing right like i'm a i'm a good father i'm a good grandfather and he's using that as a shield at the same time just excluding this little girl um from from uh, the the lineage and the name to which she is entitled, um, on on a more like hard headed sort of political note, I really wonder why the New York Times thinks it's okay to write about this story now. Um, it, it does you know maybe too much speculative speculation in this, uh, but it does make me wonder if there are more Democratic Party insiders that are open to uh, shoving Biden aside, maybe in favor of Governor Newsom or somebody else um in in terms of because th there was there was a total radio silence on this issue um and all the facts on this issue have been out for a very long time uh, and no interest in the media uh in, in terms of covering this story about the bidens uh, until now so i'm just throwing out that speculation yeah so i would say joe biden made this fair game because he's literally made hugging his family and the loyalty there essential to his public character. So he has brought this upon himself. Um, and I think the reality is, and we've long known this in Joe Biden's remarks and his actions, he is, as, and also as now the media has reported, he's a very angry and nasty person interpersonally. Uh, this shows you the callousness of the Biden family and how politically calculating they are. You won't let this little girl take the family's name if she wants it. And then Hunter Biden, who brought in all these mil millions of dollars, has his uh, child care payments reduced substantially and is going to help pay off uh, his debts essentially in his artwork. Um, that's the story there. Uh, you know, usually talking about what goes on in individuals' personal lives, including political people, political people can be horrible in their personal lives and great leaders. But in this case, again, he has made this part of his image. So it's certainly fair game to talk about how cruel this appears to be. And I'm struck, Jonathan Turley has covered this at length. Turley is not a guy who would normally harp on this sort of thing, but you can see 
at a very personal level, how impacted he is in witnessing this, having covered the Biden's uh, obfuscation on this issue for so long. And I think it's very telling when you see someone like a Turley react in the way that he has to this issue. Um, now, the other aspect of this, uh, well, also worth noting, obviously, you know, the Democrats obviously excuse the actions of Bill Clinton, and this goes back to Teddy Kennedy and beyond. So there's nothing new here in terms of the Biden family defenders. Now, they, why did the media raise this? I mean, I've been kind of a broken record on the fact that there have been myriad insurance policies waiting out there, including the open secrets known for years about the Biden family's influence peddling and corruption, any of which could be dropped on Joe Biden at any time to the extent the Democrat Party and really the ruling regime wants him out. So I view this as just one in a potential what seems like a drip 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 of stories that might be used ultimately to sideline joe biden and there does seem to be something of an effort to start coronating gavin newsom at least if you pay attention to establishment media so maybe this is finally the time where they are preparing the grounds for a switch but it's yet to be seen so i don't buy it i do not buy that this is kind of the final knife to get Joe Biden out of the running. I I think that what happened back in January when various deep state actors unveiled Biden's own classified document retention scandal at the Chinese Communist Party funded Penn Center for Global Diplomacy or whatever the heck it's called. And, and then we saw the timeline where that we, we saw that that kind of happened right around the time that, of the November election is, is when the federal officials started getting involved there. That kind of looked like a quasi cover up of sorts. That to me, was the ruling class's attempt to get Joe Biden out. But he didn't go out. I mean, his campaign formally launched in April. I mean, if you want to call it a campaign, it has fewer than 20 full-time employees. It has no physical headquarters. It looks like, it looks like they're going to try to reprise the 2020 strategy of having a senile dude kind of, you know, you know, you know doddering on the brink of, of, yeah, of who knows what, um, run from a basement. I mean, it looks like they're trying to do that again. But I guess the point I'm trying to make is I think that their window of opportunity to try to shunt him aside has, uh, you know, pending unforeseen events or at least not presently contemplatable events has for now largely closed. I mean, again, a lot could change. I mean, Joe Biden could obviously be hospitalized tomorrow. He's in he's in demonstrably, palpably, viscerally horrible health. Um, so, I mean, a lot a lot could change. But for now, I don't see it happening. One other final thing to note. Uh, David Byler, I think his name. He's a statistician with the Washington Post, and he's he, he's quite good. Um, I, I try to keep up with with a lot of his analysis. And one thing that he has made a habit of noting, not just recently, kind of in the broader context of this flurry of Maureen Dowd esque attempts to kind of seemingly nuke Joe Biden, but one thing that David Byler has has been noting is that. You know, for all the talk of kind of the movement of the white working class away from kind of being the hard scrabble party of FDR, Harry Truman Democrats towards the modern GOP, the the single largest demographic constituency that currently comprises Democratic votes is actually non-college educated whites. I think it's I think it was 32 percent, if I'm not mistaken, of, of the of the 2020 Democratic Party national vote share was non-college educated whites. And the broader point here is that for all of kind of the leftist activists desire to throw aside this horribly you know health ridden man who was from a different era and put in Pete Buttigieg, Kamala Harris trying to do that while simultaneously not using that 32% of non-college educated whites who are still stubbornly voting democrats while Joe Biden is the only person who 
is, is even willing to occasionally mouth the rhetoric of kind of being working class Joe from Scranton, Pennsylvania, talk about manufacturing, things like that. That's very difficult. So color me quite skeptical that they're going to be able to pull this off successfully, although I have no doubts that various kind of activists would like to do so. All right, let's transition to final thoughts. Who wants to kick us off? Um, if, if to avoid the silence that usually takes place, so we first ask this question, I'll, I'll go first because I have a very like sort of self-contained thing. Um, last time we talked about when we were talking about the affirmative action case, I said my greatest hope for this is that it's going to start bleeding into America's corporations and all of those clearly racially discriminatory programs that are are um, are being used in America's corporations to promote essentially uh, black and Hispanic and sometimes female applicants over white. Uh, male and Asian applicants, um, both within and and initial hiring. Um, I think most people understand. Uh, they're just not really honest with themselves about it, but most people understand that's happening. They observe it. Um, and I was hoping that some of the, the rationale, even though it's under a different constitutional basis, that some of the court's reasoning for about the colorblind constitution would then bleed over uh, into, uh, for example, Title VII stuff under the Civil Rights Act and generally scare corporations uh, into this idea that, in fact, they cannot discriminate on the basis of race, um, even if they're doing it for DEI purposes. Um, that seems like it might be working. I have a report from Aaron Sibarium, who's still working on a larger story about this, but he's been tweeting out that he's been talking, for example, to DEI departments um, in, in large law firms, and that actually even liberal attorneys uh, are telling large corporations, no, you have to cool it with this, like you're potentially legally liable. That would be a very, very good outcome from this case. And it's not one of those direct, you can draw a line legally, but it just, a lot of this, um, you know, a lot of the doctrines, as Josh knows very well, um, a lot of the doctrines from uh, equal protection and and uh, there's a lot of cross-pollination in terms of the court doctrines across these different anti-discriminatory, whether constitutional provisions or um, provisions under the Civil Rights Act. And it sounds like uh, law firms, at least, and hopefully the rest of corporate America tomorrow will actually have to start worrying about something very basic, which is they are practicing racial preferences, just as universities. And that'll be a much harder nut to crack because they're much more ideologically sort of locked in um, and, and willing to sacrifice for the cause. But if we can if we can threaten large American corporations with the potential of very expensive uh, and unsavory lawsuits over their racial preferences uh, in hiring, um, I think that would be a very positive thing. So it's good to hear that that's happening. So my my white pill for today. I'll be really brief. Um, I would echo second and Josh's recommendation about that Philip Hamburger piece on the abridging of speech. It's a hugely significant argument with respect to the Missouri v. Biden case and, and at least one other associated case of you don't necessarily need to find a smoking gun of government official telling a social media company to take down an account or a tweet, even though there are myriad smoking guns that show exactly that in the evidence in Missouri v. Biden, but abridging speech and looking at how that is actually defined and understood points to any number of activities that the government has taken with respect to the social media companies, inducing those companies to do things that constrict our right to speak freely about clearly, obviously protected issues. Um, so it's a really compelling piece. And we'll see ultimately if these arguments get fleshed out and whether or not they get up to the Supreme Court, or maybe they prevail and are sustained below the Supreme Court. Um, that aside, uh, 
I don't really have necessarily a takeaway on it, but obviously, you know, maybe next week we'll be talking about the fact that uh, purported whistleblower Gal Luft was uh, indicted by the Department of Justice. Luft, of course, uh, is has come out and he gave about 14 minutes worth of testimony. He's sort of been on the run, essentially facing all of these uh, potential charges, now charges that have been brought. But he claims that he went to the FBI and pointed towards uh, these basically corrupt payments from Chinese entities to the Biden family. And of course, now uh, the Biden Justice Department is seeking to prosecute him. That's obviously going to be something that we'll be watching in the days and months to come. Last but not least, uh, worth noting that Christopher Ray, I assume by the time this episode is out, will have testified before Congress. Uh, we'll be fascinated to see what he is asked by the House Judiciary Committee. Uh, House Republicans are seeking to potentially move the next FBI headquarters to Alabama. I've seen there are uh, related issues, of course, around uh, Section 702 and FISA this year. Um, so any number of interesting matters presenting themselves right now around weaponization of the national security apparatus and the national security apparatus's efforts to go after wrong thinkers uh, through both prosecution as well as censorship. All of these issues playing out in real time, and I'm sure we'll cover them some of them next week. So I will talk briefly also about Supreme Court and judicial nominations and and all of that. So I had a piece for Newsweek last week. So I've actually I, this is public by now. It's been public for a month and a half. I've switched roles in Newsweek. I no longer control the op-ed page, but I finally participated in our new daily debate, our, our debate of the day. It was not debate of the day when I was there. That's been an, an editorial change. And the debate that I participated in was basically whether or not the Supreme Court was somehow illegitimate in the aftermath of this term. And the point that I repeatedly took pains to emphasize was that the statistics belie the very notion that this, that this past term was some sort of radically right-wing, crazy reactionary Supreme Court. And I, I took a peek and I saw that my good friend Ilya Shapiro, uh, I think many of our good friends actually, Ilya Shapiro had a had another had a piece of Newsweek today making actually the exact same point. I think his piece is entitled "What Right Wing Court." So it's worth just kind of briefly kind of making that argument, I guess. If you if you look at the sheer number of six to three quote unquote ideological decisions, where you have the six Republican nominated justices in the majority and the three Democratic nominated justices in the in the dissent. I think there were five for the, if I'm not mistaken, for this entire Supreme Court term, whereas the previous year was was close to like 13 or 14. I can't remember the exact number, but it's something right along those lines. So there were demonstrably, I, I explicitly far, far fewer of those terms. If you look at the, at these statistics as to which justices were in the majority most frequently this term, it was the three more centrist Republican nominated justices. That would be Chief Justice Roberts, Justice Brett Kavanaugh, and Justice Amy Coney Barrett. Who found themselves in the majority most often this term, admittedly, but if you look at the two justices who found themselves in the in the majority least often, you know, I think a lot of people will guess Sonia Sotomayor and, and Katanji Brown Jackson. No, the two justices who were in the majority least often were the two actual conservatives on the court, Samuel Alito and Clarence Thomas. Um, so I mean, that basically I think says all you need to know. It's worth also emphasizing there's been a couple of kind of um scatter plot kind of ranking the justices ideologically from like most liberal to most conservative based on their votes. This past term, I, I've seen multiple of these, one that was in Axios, one that was in, I, I can't remember else, it was Politico, New York Times, something like that. 
And both of these have Sonia Sotomayor so far out there. She is orders of magnitude more liberal than any of the conservatives are more right wing, Samuel Alito, Clarence Thomas. And it basically just underscores, uh, to be clear, I'm not casting aspersions on Samuel Alito, Clarence Thomas, who are two amazing Americans. Um, but the point that I'm trying to make here is that this this narrative, this is kind of a, a right wing reactionary court is just total and complete nonsense. And, you know, I would encourage folks who have not done so to read kind of read the final at least 10 to 15 pages of John Roberts's majority opinion in the affirmative action case, where he just kind of emphasizes over and over again that the two leading dissenters in that case, Justices Jackson, Sotomayor, simply do not grasp or, or they do not grapple with, I should say, Justice Powell's affirmative action opinion, which came to be kind of the defining opinion of the Bakke case of 1978, which kind of got the court down this horrible rabbit hole of race conscious emissions. I, I think it was Katanji Brown Jackson literally doesn't even mention Justice Powell's opinion. She just repeatedly cites the, the dissenting opinions of Thurgood Marshall, William Brennan, justices like that. And Sonia Sotomayor had like one kind of passing snarky reference. So you know, if I'm taking kind of, you know, the gloves off here, I guess what I really would say is that some of these progressives are just fundamentally unserious jurists, frankly. Um, it is never it, it is never any doubt whatsoever as to where they will vote on any issue of any reasonable consequence whatsoever that pertains to the Democratic Party's very explicit cable news and New York Times driven partisan agenda. The only relevant question um, you know, is whether kind of Roberts, Kavanaugh, Barrett, and occasionally Gorsuch will side properly with Alito or Thomas, depending on the case. So just want to get that off my chest. I'm so glad you did, because I think I was trying to like uh, describe the sophistry um, to Inez on, a, on another podcast we did, and I really struggled without having a legal background, but you can just read it, and it feels like freshman uh, pre-law, the work of like freshman pre-law people. It's so bad. <laughs> uh, but my final thought will be just in general on this, this question of like, if you're trying to run on restoring sanity to schools, restoring common sense to schools, et cetera, et cetera, and um, you have this type of media uh, in your way, like the Casey DeSantis said, I was just thinking about this since we had that conversation. Um, it makes me so sad because I genuinely think one of the amazing things Ron DeSantis had had done um, and Glenn Youngkin was able to do before the media quite caught on to a narrative um, was, was talk to parents directly and uh, bring new information to campaign on new information and to come up with some sort of novel policies. And then the media developed a narrative and made it increasingly impossible to communicate with parents and to uh, create policies and defend policies and to incentivize other politicians to uh, pursue policy solutions um, because the media has, has finally figured out a way to put a huge price on it uh, and that doesn't mean we don't have you know brave jurists or brave jurists brave uh, uh policy makers um but it does mean that this entire campaign is just going to be you know when you you have people like ron DeSantis and, and donald trump um you know whoever is nominated up against biden uh it, it's just really sad to me how little the media is how, how little honesty the media is going to uh afford in this conversation and it's just such a serious one because it affects uh, kids mental health their physical health and uh it's it's affecting people every single every single day so on that note, uh, thanks, everybody, for sticking around. Thanks, everybody, for watching. Uh, I'm Emily Jashinsky, and uh, on behalf of Inez, Ben, Josh, and myself, thank you so much for tuning in to NatCon Squad. We'll see you next week.